Would you rather sing really loudly in your sleep every night? Uh huh. Or shit your pants once a day? I'd probably rather sing, yeah. But if you ever had like a someone stay the night with you, or ever like got married or something, that person would have to hear you like singing really loudly as they sleep. But I could like put a mask over my face or something. <laughs> Suffocate. <laughs> I wouldn't have to put it over my nose. Yeah, you'd have a mask. You'd still hear it. They'd have to. They'd have to wear headphones or something. But like your neighbor, you would have to do something because your neighbors would be mad. I feel like, I don't know, that seems more manageable than cleaning shit out of my pants every day. Yeah, you'd have to just wear or, diapers or something. Or, or, or having to wear diapers. <laughs> yeah, <they're laughs> I mean, shitting your pants would be the easiest if you had diapers, because you're just like, oh, there it is, then, okay, I'm done, you know? Is it, is it predictable? Is it, like, the same time every day? No, it can't be, or else it would, it would be well, too then, easy. Yeah, well, what if you're, like, on a hot date <laughs> or something, and you're banging, and, like, you just oh, you're banging? <laughs> you'd have to you'd have to make your bang you'd have to judge your bang by uh oh we're throwing discs how 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 into you, scat they are <laughs> well yeah that too i guess you'd almost have to or uh just like if you had already shit that day yeah you know i suppose yeah so like she's all getting ready and like giving you the the bedroom eyes and you're like no, I can't tonight. <laughs> you can't give her the explanation why. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I uh, just my stomach's bothering me. <laughs>
We start with a completely silent TriStar logo as it flashes from color to black and white. And the opening crawl has a similar text to old school B-movies with the wavy font like you'd see on Scooby-Doo. And it'll be pretty evident as you watch this film that it's meant to be a, a parody of those 1950s B-horror movies. And similar to those old films, it had a very, very small budget. In particular, this film had a budget of about $100,000. <laughs> and wow. I think in gross it made about $150,000 whether that's through theater viewings or what I'm not entirely sure but at least it made its money back yeah man I mean I'm actually kind of surprised it even cost $100,000 dude <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm serious it's incredible the music too that accompanies the opening text crawl for all the credits starts off kind of sinister with that classic string music and horns but it kind of dips in sort of a goofy territory, and we're shown a, a series of images of skulls and caves and caves and skulls and skulls and more caves just to <laughs> drive home the point about what this movie's about. I love to do it. It reminded me of a Venture Brothers intro. Mm-hmm. So good. Well, we start off proper. There's a couple driving through the mountains, and they exchange some really awkward dialogue. They talk about the how the, the scenery is really nice here, if you like scenery at least. And they laugh for way too long and it kind of keys us in as to what kind of acting and dialogue we expect from this movie yeah pretty much they just like spin circles around the same dialogue over and over again uh -huh. the man's name is paul and he's actually played by the director larry blamer or blamire i'm not sure if i'm saying that right and he's a, a scientist doing science work for science <laughs> and his betty is concerned that he's maybe doing a little too much science but uh that's what she signed up for, to be the wife of a scientist. They decide to ask a man by the road for directions, and he's literally just standing there, as if he's a, an extra standing on his mark. <laughs> <laughs> his directions are very long-winded and filled with ominous-sounding areas. Uh, the reason why, he says, are people are superstitious because of Cadaver Cave, and they all laugh it off because they think it's all just some sort of ghost story or whatever but as they drive off his smile turns back into a, a serious frown and he watches as they go down the road he's like describing his directions forever he's like then you'll go down the staring skulls and you'll come <laughs> around to death's clearing and then there's devil's dick tunnel it's over there <laughs> like uh okay man yeah and the wife her name is betty and she's like oh those are all awfully ominous sounding names <laughs> Excuse me, can you tell us the way to the old Taylor place? Sure thing, mister. Stay on this road here. Past Dead Man's Curve, you'll come to an old fence called the Devil's Fence. From there, go on foot till you come to a valley known as the Cathedral of Lost Soap. Smack in the center is what they call Forgetful Milkman's Quadrangle. Stay right on the path of Staring Skulls, and you come to a place called Death Clearing. Cabin's right there, can't miss it. Boy, that doesn't sound too inviting. Oh, well, a lot of folks superstitious in these parts, what with the legend of Cadaver Cave and all. <laughs> Next you'll be telling us there's monsters. <laughs> we cut to a man standing in the woods who appears to be a forest ranger. And we know he's a forest ranger because he loudly proclaims that he hopes somebody needs a forest ranger's assistance soon. <laughs> and what do you know? A guy comes up with the name of Dr. Roger Fleming saying he needs assistance. And the ranger introduces himself as Ranger Brad because that's what people call him, Ranger Brad. Turns out the doctor is looking for that same cadaver cave that was brought up earlier. Ranger Brad shows him the way on this little crappy map that he brought. It's like a crumpled up piece of paper. <laughs> and, uh... Ranger Brad questions why he'd want to go up there, because he brings up the, the legend of the skeleton of Cadaver Cave. And Dr. Refleming responds with the... <laughs> Ranger Brad, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in anything. <laughs> I had that one written down, too. I was like, this guy rocks, man. <laughs> we cut back to the couple, and Betty's complaining that her legs feel like two heavy, slow things. But uh, Paul wants to do science. And so they got to keep going. And then they point off screen and there's uh, <laughs> some stock footage of some squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> and they just laugh at the squirrels for like a minute and a half straight. 
Yeah, I was confused. I was typing during that part, and I looked up, and I was like, what the fuck did I miss? <laughs> well, they roll up on a cabin that, uh, they come to the front door of the cabin, but Paul claims that the entrance is on the other side, and so it's like, why didn't they just start on that side? <laughs> they get inside, though, and Betty is pretty happy with the cabin, but... Paul's sitting in the chair, and he's all mopey, and he's lamenting that, as a scientist, he wished he could enjoy small things in life, like cabins and bicycles. He also says that the meteorite could be made of atmospherium, and says that when he's done with his work, he'd like to take Betty out on the lake. They're laughing, and Betty thinks to herself, but, uh, we don't have a boat. And he says, <laughs> well, if we did have a boat, <laughs> you'd be the first person I'd take out on it. Yeah. After they're done talking, Paul suddenly sees a light falling from the sky, and he rushes over to the window. And as they're looking up, we get a really crude graphic of a comet streaking across the sky. It's like a really crappy animation of like a comet going through the night sky. Betty thinks that it might be the meteor they came here for, but Paul reminds her that the meteor already landed. And she says, oh yeah, silly me. Who ever heard of a meteor going back into space? As Paul's looking at it, he says, hmm, I wonder. And we get a smash cut to Dr. Fleming also looking at the sign, <laughs> yeah. this guy. And he also says, hmm, I also wonder. <laughs> yeah, that's like, they do that a lot in this movie where they just play off the same scripts. We get a shot of a, a, a small model for us, like for little toys. And a tin tube of a rocket ship comes landing down in the middle of it. <laughs> we cut to a man, presumably a farmer, he's got overalls and stuff. And there's sounds of cows coming from off screen. And his way of trying to calm them down is he's just standing completely still with his hands up. And he's saying in a really monotone voice, Oh, they're there. They're there. There's nothing to be afraid of. We don't see any cows or anything, though. It's just clearly a dude filming his friend, like, in front of a bush. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we, there's no mention of a farm or anything in these mountains ever yeah. again after this one either. And he turns to look at something off screen, and he's covering his eyes and screaming because he's obviously saw something terrible, and this is the last we ever see of this guy. Yep. Paul, he comes outside with his science device, and he says that it's made specifically for tracking atmospherium. It looks like a Geiger counter, basically, and it's got like a little stethoscope on the end of it, I think. And for some reason, Betty is saying that there's something off about the, the evening. There's... Something she can't quite touch or see or or feel or, or, or put her finger on or or touch or, or, or see or feel. But there's something wrong. She knows that there's something wrong. That's awesome, dude. Well, time to find a meteor. Looks like a perfect day for hunting space rocks, wouldn't you say, Betty? Oh, Paul, I'm frightened. What, what is it, darling? What's the matter? Tell me. I don't know. Nothing I can put my finger on. Not something I can see, or touch, or feel, but something I can't quite see, or touch, or feel, or put my finger on. Oh well. Should we find that meteor? <sighs> yes, of course. And the next thing we see is Dr. Fleming. He's climbing some rocks. He takes out that crumpled piece of paper again, and there's supposed to be a map on it, but it just kind of looks like they just, like took an ink pen and just scribbled all over it. <laughs> they definitely did, dude. I mean, the rocket ship looked like a toilet paper roll. They painted silver, dude, so... Uh -huh. oh, that's too good. Got back to Betty and Paul. They're slowly walking around with this science device, and the Geiger meter starts going off as if something's coming right at them. But just as they turn to look at it, and the meter's going all crazy, it dissipates, and they say, well, whatever it was, it's gone now. We get back to Dr. Fleming, though. He's still climbing up this big cliff. But he finally makes it to a small cave that he believes to be a cadaver cave. And he starts heading inside with a flashlight, and what do you know? He finds a skeleton wrapped in a cloth, and he starts talking to it. Ten feet <laughs> in. You can see the light from the damn cave opening still. Uh -huh. <laughs> he, la he starts laughing maniacally, and he says that the, the lost skeleton of cadaver will make him the most powerful man in the world. And he laughs for like <laughs> three minutes unedited footage. Yeah. And, and it fades out with him still laughing in the background. And it's just a uh, like a science room skeleton on the ground. Uh -huh. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not even a real skeleton. No. It's just like a cheap plastic one. <laughs> we fade out with him laughing and transition over to the rocket ship. And a man in a space suit comes out. His name is apparently Crewbar. And he comes out with his wife. 
and they refer to each other as he who is my husband and she who is my wife. Every, everything these guys say is just basically very roundabout and overly explained. They say they, they come from a far-off planet called Marva, which is their planet. And they ponder how strange it is that people from different places act differently. They kind of remind me of like an SNL skit. Uh-huh. We also find out that their mutant escaped. And apparently it's capable of killing millions of people with its own hands. <laughs> if only it did have hands, my woman. If only it did have hands. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Fleming, he's in the cave with his science equipment, which is just a microscope and some beakers. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I don't know where he got it from because he didn't have like a backpack or anything on him, <laughs> but he's got it now. It's just to show that he's a scientist, dude. That's uh -huh. And he's crying because the he needs the skeleton to come to life. And he thinks it's not talking to him because he thinks it hates him. Because even when he's a kid, skeletons hated him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just that the skeleton talks and he's like, oh, you're an idiot. Yeah, shut the hell up. Yeah. It, start, it starts berating him. And the skeleton, as it turns <laughs> out, is uh, actually voiced by the director. Who's also playing Paul in the movie. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And the skeleton's telling him, all right, dumbass, you have to go give me the atmospherium because that's what's going to bring me back to life. Yeah. And then together we're going to take over the world. Yeah, he's promising him everything. And he's like, I sleep now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he does this multiple times throughout the whole movie. He just goes, I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah, he just checks out of every situation they're in. <laughs> so after this, Fleming, he's wondering out loud where he can find some atmospherium. It just so happens that he overhears Paul, who is a scientist, and his scientist's <laughs> wife, as they discover the atmosphere and meteorite. He just goes over to where they are, and they're just hunched over this thing, and it's just like the size of a tennis ball, basically. <laughs> yeah. Fleming also says that he can't believe his luck, and that if the, the rock was a woman, it would kiss him. <laughs> and, similarly, at the same time, the aliens from Planet Marva, they find out that their ship will need atmospherium to take off. So the wife goes off to hunt for the mutant with a transmutatron, which just looks like a bike pump. Yep, <laughs> like, yep. like, not even fixed or anything. Like, they didn't add anything to it. It's, this is literally just a bike pump. They're you, know, you know what it actually is? It's a, a caulking gun. You ever used a caulking gun? Uh, yeah, and then they just threw, like, uh, some fake wires around it. <laughs> oh, my God. As it just so happens, the wife finds scientist Paul and his science wife, Betty. As they're talking about uh, how much the atmosphere will change the world. Crowbar! Crowbar! What is it, my woman? You need not yell because of my proximity. I yell not from the volume required by great distance, but from happy excitement. Two Earth people. There are many Earth people, my wife. Pray, speak more specifically. What is special about these two that warrants my interest? Surely nothing. Because these two, as you call them, have atmospherium. Back at the cabin. Fleming actually followed Paul and Betty, the science couple. And inside, they have the meteor on a plate. And Paul warns not to eat the meteorite, whatever you do. Even though it's on a plate, don't, don't eat it. <laughs> yep, even though it looks like a snack. He also says that uh, they'll clean the dishes before they go. I, I don't know if estropharium or whatever it's called is like radiation, but apparently you can just wash it off. I mean, they've been holding... They've been yeah, exactly. Handling, they've been handling this thing with their bare hands, so, like... It's I mean, it's, it's strong enough to power a rocket and also bring a skeleton back to life, so it's gotta be, like, oh. <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah, well, whatever. Well, while Fleming is trying to think of a way into the cabin, the alien man and wife, they're coming in, into the cabin and disguise. Uh, they decide to disguise themselves. They use the, uh, the transmutatron to uh, turn themselves into regular 1950s-looking people. The wife just has, like, a, a regular dress on, and the man is in, like, a three-piece suit. And also, before they do this, somehow Fleming, he, he overhears them saying all this. And while they're still in their spacesuits, he's somehow able to figure out that they're aliens. <laughs> despite them not saying that they're aliens or anything like that. Yeah, and then they're like... Well, let's just leave this gun right here, because I don't want anyone uh -huh. to know, know what it is. <laughs> Throwing this, yeah. like, the bush right next to the guy. <laughs> As they're heading up to the step, the, the house, they get to their, their first <laughs> hurdle. They find a, a bunch of stairs, and they're they're not quite sure what stairs are. 
they think it's a, a bunch of buildings leading up in quick succession. Yeah. And then the husband manages to figure out that if they ascend to the, the buildings, they can get to the front entrance. So they decide to make their way up, but their backs are up against the wall, and they're very slowly climbing one step at a time. <laughs> the wife almost falls over at one point, and he pulls her back up, and they slowly creep their way up and finally make it to the top. They act like they're on like a cliffside or whatever. Uh-huh. But as they get to the entrance, they're confused because the door isn't opening on their own. And so they think that their cover is blown because they can't figure out how to open the door. And they're just loudly narrating all of this. Yeah. That was like one of my favorite parts, dude, is every time they were confused, they would just go on about it like that. Why won't it open for us? I don't understand. Does it not know we're human? Thankfully, Betty overhears them. So she opens the door and they all greet each other. And thankfully, their their cover isn't blown because Betty thinks that there's a couple that they rented the cabin at from. And so... They, they all decide to go inside, and the aliens introduce themselves as Turgasso and Baymon, the most human <laughs> names they can think of. Yeah. They get to the couch, and they're, they're invited to sit down, and they awkwardly sit by first folding themselves in half, and then falling <laughs> backwards onto the couch. Violently, dude, like, not soft. <laughs> and Paul offers them something to drink, and the husband just says, liquids. <laughs> and Paul, being a 1950s guy, is like, oh, I like your style. I'm going to go get some scotch and sodas. And Paul comes back just in time with some some tall glasses for scotch and soda. These are, they're like huge glasses, too. They're like, you they're would like think milk they'd be glasses. for yeah, milk or water or something like that. And he tries to, to cheer them, but then uh, the husband just sits there and the wife just starts gulping it down. <laughs> yeah. She, she finishes like half her glass. And Fleming, he's outside during all of this. And he, he's thinking to invite himself in, but he, he thinks it would, it would be weird if he didn't come without a date. So he picks up the transponder, and there's a, supposedly an animal nearby. We don't actually see it. <laughs> but he, he fires it at the, the animals, and it turns into a woman with a, a black form-fitting suit. And this woman is actually the director's wife. Oh, nice. She's, uh, I couldn't find her appearing in anything else other than his films, but... It's just so funny. She's fucking hot too. Like, like the whole oh, movie, yeah. she's like, yeah, doing well, all these weird. Well, exactly. Yeah, I think she's supposed to be like a cat, but mm-hmm. she does like everything she does is like seductive and everything. Uh huh. She's like writhing and crawling around <laughs> and like doing all this weird shit. The baby girl voice, like the ooh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And for some reason, instead of just running off she's skulking over to fleming because he's just calling her over he's like yep come here come here come on and he's telling her like oh since i created you i should now name you i will call you animala but to everyone else all the lesser beings of the world you will simply be known as pammy (laughs) (laughs) and she's just like okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, we cut back inside, and the alien wife is very drunk. She's, like, hiccuping and falling over herself. She's, like, feeling up her husband and being all like, Ooh, I've never been a human before. Yeah. <laughs> and Paul tries to make small talk with the husband. She's, he says, uh, well, well, what do you do? And he just says, I can do anything. And Paul says, I like that in a man. I, <laughs> I, as a scientist man myself, also feel like I can do most anything. The girls, though, they try to connect over shopping. Well, mm. it, the the one, the alien ones, just talking about how she loves her dress and how she uh, loves maybe per, perhaps getting more dresses at some point because that's the only thing oh. she has to relate to humans so far is what she's wearing. <laughs> uh-huh. And the wife's like, "Oh, shopping! Yeah, yeah, yeah! I like shopping too." Yeah, and there's like there's some banter, like very 1950s, of just like. Paul is like, oh, if only she knew how to stop, am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Bim Bamman or whatever is just stone-faced, and he's like, ah ha ha! Yeah. Well, Betty tries to ask where she got the dress from, too. She, uh, the, the alien wife accidentally lets lets forth the, the husband's actual name, Fulgore, or whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, who's Fulgore? <laughs> and the husband is like, uh... The guy she got the dress from. And she's like, oh yeah, well, where's the shop at? I'd like to go there sometime. And they're just like, uh, we don't talk about shops. Yeah, he was like, my wife hates talking about the shop. (laughs) (laughs) 
please, please be seated. Fold yourself in the middle. Um, can we get you anything? A drink, perhaps? Yes, liquid, please. A man who gets right to the point. I like that. How about four scotch and sodas? Hmm. My, that's a, a, a lovely dress, Tregasso. Yes. Yes, I too thought this. I... I almost felt it somehow. That is what I told Crowbar. Who's Crowbar? Is he the designer? Yes. Yes. Crowbar is the designer. Well, you're going to have to tell me where their store is. My wife does not like to talk about a store. We are just like you, really, I assure you. Yes, I also appreciate your soft cloth funnel, Betty. Four drinks coming up. Here's to one heck of a beautiful cabin. <laughs> Tergasso certainly was thirsty. Who? And apparently this goes on for a while because we get another exterior shot of the cabin and it's nighttime again. And and Paul is uh he's talking to Baymon, and I don't know if this was a line that the the director missed or if this was intentional. He's like, uh it's sure is nice being out here in the woods, Ben 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 Baymon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that, dude. Well, while they're conversing. Plumbing finally comes to the door with Pam. And this whole time he's been, like, teaching her, like, how to talk like a human and, like, how to behave appropriately. He's teaching her, like, how to drink from a cup. He's like, tip, 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 tip it back. So he comes in and he, he introduces himself as, like, Rudolph Kipling or something like that. Some other name. They're like, oh, great, more guests. Let's all sit down for dinner. And so they sit down and, of course... Pam is the first one to do anything. She drinks from her cup and she <laughs> loudly proclaims tip, 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 tip while she's drinking from it. Yeah. And so they, the aliens, they follow suit. So they're just copying her. And everyone else is just like, uh, oh, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Well, the aliens, like, before they all sit down, they're like, what do we do? We've never had the dinner before. And so, like, the husband's like, just do anything the humans do. And of course, the cat's the first thing to do anything. So they're like, okay. Oh, that's so good. And then they all pick up their forks to eat, but of course the cat wasn't taught properly how to eat, so she just slams her face <laughs> into the fucking dinner table. And yeah. so the aliens do too, and they're just like, <laughs> But then, suddenly, there's a shadow at the front door. And Paul, he decides to take all the guys to the front door to see what it is, because it's just like a sudden sound coming from outside. And it turns out it's just Ranger Brad. And Ranger Brad comes inside, and he, he recognizes Fleming, and he calls him Fleming. But Fleming says, uh, no, that's just a nickname I go by. My name is Rudolph Yeaber. <laughs> they invite Brad in, though. They invite him to sit, and he goes, oh, yeah, I don't mind sitting sometimes. <laughs> Paul and Betty, they introduce uh, Ranger Brad to the, the Taylors, which is the, the alien couple. But Ranger Brad, since he's, you know, local to the area, he goes, oh, I thought the Taylors were older. And the aliens, they go, we are the younger <laughs> version. Yeah. <laughs> and Richard Brad goes, oh, I didn't know they had kids. Oh, okay. Well, the reason why he came by is to, to tell everyone in the area that there was a mutilated body in the woods. And while he's saying this, Pam, the Catwoman, comes up to Brad's knees, and we get this really awkward shot where it's his face from down below, obviously where she's supposed to be. And then he's looking down at her, and she's just, like, gripping onto his knees, looking up at him. And he's just like, uh, okay. It's a straight-up POV blowed fucking scene. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, as he's leaving, he tells Paul that it might have been a bear, because in his time, he's seen bears doing things that even bears wouldn't do. <laughs> so, so it's not out of the realm of possibility. And, and while he's telling him this, Pam's also licking his hand. And he's just like... Good night, Miss Pam. <laughs> just exit out the door. As Ranger Brad leaves, Paul almost makes the connection between the, the mutilations and the mutant, because at some point earlier, the mutant got brought up. He goes, mutilation? Mutant? Mutilation? Could there be some kind of correlation? Ah, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
we get to Ranger Brown outside, though, and he, he almost spooks himself because he's hearing noises in the woods. And he realizes that it's kind of a dumb idea to be walking around when there's some sort of creature mutilating things. But then he brushes it off because he says, eh, well, it's a good thing I don't believe in things. But as he's walking, the noises start up again. And he, he says, noises in the woods? That doesn't <laughs> normally happen. Yeah. He's like, like innocently narrating this whole thing, you know, like, it sure is dark. I hope it won't get mutilated. <laughs> <laughs> And the camera zooms in on his face just like the farmer, and well, well, we know he's dead. Oh well, better get home. Say, I must be crazy walking out in these woods alone at night with a horrible mutilation practically around the corner. Oh well. Ooh, what a night. Glad I don't believe in things. What's that? This is crazy. Things like this just don't happen. Noises? Noises in the woods? Stay away. Stay away. What's that? What's that? No! Sounded like an earth scream. It's too late. There's nothing you can do for him now. But his screams alert everyone in the house. And while they're discussing what might be happening, the skeleton contacts Anamala because he's getting impatient. He's like, I need the, the atmospherium now. He tells Anamala where to find it, but she mishears him. And she stands up and she goes, I need to find a Amish terrarium. <laughs> and Paul says that, uh, Putting the Amish in a glass bowl would be inhumane, so I don't know what the heck she's talking about. The skeleton, he decides to try his luck with the other woman in the group, though. So he decides to, to hypnotize Betty to find it instead. And the, the aliens, they, they cue in and they find out that Betty's getting all woozy because she's getting hypnotized. So they use their alien mind powers on her. So <laughs> there's just a constant cut back and forth between the skeleton and the aliens saying, Find me the atmospherium! Yeah, it's like a tug of war between the two. But they're, like, getting her confused because they're saying different things. Uh-huh. Yeah, so she stands up and she says, I think it's about time I go to bed so I can make coffee. And Paul's <laughs> like, what are you talking about, buddy? You can't make coffee while you're in bed. She goes to the room to get the meteorite, but she passes out on the bed. And uh, while she's walking, Paul is trying to talk her out of it. And Fleming is like, oh, hold on, Paul. It's not good to wake a sleepwalker. And Paul goes... Sleepwalker, she hasn't even slept yet. <laughs> yeah. She wakes up, though, and she has no idea how she got into the bed. And Paul just tells her that, it's okay, honey, you were just doing stupid things. <laughs> Betty says that there was a smiling skull and alien brains that were trying to influence her. And Paul, and Paul is like, honey, skeletons don't smile. If anything, it'd be a grin. Yeah, but then he decides to lock her up. He's like, she's crazy. Let's just lock her up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he locks her in the room and locks the meteorite in the closet or something. Yeah. Well, Fleming is downstairs while they're up there, and he's talking with the aliens. And he lets Slip to know that he knows that they're aliens. And he says that he won't tell Paul and Betty that they're aliens because they have the same goal. They each want to get the atmospherium, and they'll they'll share it so that they'll be benefiting from it. And they have this ridiculously long conversation. It seems we are working to a similar purpose, you and I. And that purpose is... Atmospherium. So you know. Yes. For you see, I also need this Atmospherium for my very own reasons. Then surely there is enough for both of us. That's what I'm thinking. We shall share the Atmospherium. If you help us, and we help you... Well, of course! We'll be helping each other. Almost like an alliance. You could say that. As if we were actually working together. Atmospherium for me, Atmospherium for you. Some for you, and some for us. Each of us would have it. We will split it, I suppose your Earth slang would say. Very good, Tergasa. You learn our ways quickly. This way, neither of us will lack for atmospherium. Of course! You two catch on quickly. 
I can see I've chosen my partners wisely. Yes. Yes, we would be partners, wouldn't we? Partners who share. <laughs> <laughs> Partners who share. I like that. Well, after their very long-winded roundabout conversation, the aliens ask Fleming how they're going to get the meteor, and Fleming is just like, uh... uh I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they spent all that time arguing and shit, and they don't even... Neither one has a plan. <laughs> well, I think it's the next morning or something like that, and Paul is... He's studying the rock. And Betty interrupts him, and he tells her that even a tiny amount of atmospherium could fuel a spaceship from Earth to the moon six times. And Betty is like, well, I, I hope I don't have to go from here to the kitchen and back six times to let you know that <laughs> breakfast is ready. Yeah, she's awesome, dude. <laughs> she also admits to Paul that she doesn't know where their guests are, and just concludes that they're probably out hiking somewhere. He said, but he does say, I hope they don't fall off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and as she leaves like literally like a minute after she's gone Anamala comes in and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she's doing her sexy cat thing she's like <laughs> dancing around the room and gyrating and stuff and he's like well I guess it's okay for you to be in here just as long as you're quiet and as long as you don't do a big dance number and she <laughs> yeah. turns around and there's just a radio there for no reason and she turns it on and she starts dancing and he's like now that's literally the exact opposite thing i told you to do <laughs> her dancing though it hypnotizes them and they start dancing together and he's just like awkwardly like just flailing his arms around and just <laughs> bouncing all over and she's like waving her hands around like cat calling him towards her come to me and she calls it the rock dance and so he he picks up the meteorite and he bends over and he puts it in a suitcase and locks it up and then he picks it up and starts following her out of the house it's like weekend of bernie dancing her his way along with her dude <laughs> yeah they go all the way onto the woods before betty decides to go out and find <laughs> out where he is she's just like paul i've been calling for you i don't see anybody in the house well, Animala, she dances with them all the way back to the alien ship, where Fleming and the aliens are waiting, of course. And then, while Betty is out trying to look for him, she gets jumped by the mutant, who we see is like this fish-faced thing with three eyes, one in the middle of its forehead and the other two on on its side, and it's got claws and stuff like that, but it's like, it, it it's just a dude in a suit. It's just like, his legs are like, obviously sticking out, <laughs> and it's almost like uh, the front of a... Uh, one of those Chinese dragons or whatever, but just like draped over a person. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a straight up mascot costume, like the big foam head, oh. and uh, yeah, he's got like a big coat on, kinda. You know, it's supposed to be like yeah. fins or something. I don't know. It's the classic scene that you see in all those nineteen fifties B horror movies. We get a zoom in on Betty's face and a zoom in on the creature's face, and then a zoom in on Betty's face and she screams and faints and falls over, but the creature catches her and just carries her off. And the aliens, they actually hear Betty scream. They're going to go rush to, to see what it is because they, they're pretty sure that it's the mutant. But before they do anything, we find out that another one of the skeleton's powers is that he can just freeze people in place. So he freezes the aliens. <laughs> and, the, and the aliens are like, Fleming, you said you'd share it with us. And he says, I am sharing with myself. <laughs> yeah. and he's like, I have a skeleton to bring back to life. And all of a sudden they hear that dude. He's like, that would be me. <laughs> so he takes the rock back to Cadaver Cave. And as they leave, he leaves with Animal, of course. Paul wakes up and he finds that the aliens are frozen. And they tell him that the mutant has Betty. And they also tell him that the skeleton has a mental hold on them. And while they're telling him this, Paul is like, that's ridiculous. Skeletons can't have a mental hold on anyone. <laughs> and then the skeleton again, he goes, and I sleep now. <laughs> and just like that, they're free. Anyone get the number of the rocket that clobbered me? Speaking of rockets, holy moly! There's no time to explain now, Paul. The mutant has Betty. Please get these ropes off me! Take them off now! There are no ropes. My wife panics. These ropes are mental. I, I think it's a skeleton or something. Oh, that's crazy. Skeletons can't mentally hold anyone. I sleep now. <sighs> Gee, I guess they can. Now, for the love of Mike, would someone mind telling me what the heck's going on around here? The mutants got Betty. 
We are aliens. Whoa, whoa, slow down. I'm a scientist and that was still fast. We had a mutant. It got loose. It has Betty. Hey, hold on, one at a time. I'm gonna get whiplash here. Now just suppose you start at the beginning and, and tell me what happened before I get one whopper of a headache. We are from the planet Marva. We crashed here. Planet Marva? Look, you're gonna have to do a lot better than that if you want me to help you. Just suppose you take a deep breath, relax, and tell me all about it. The universe is a very large place. Well, they try to catch him up on what's happening, but he tells them that they're going too fast. They try and start back from the beginning, and they're like, we're from this planet, we came to your Earth. And he goes, that's, that's still too fast. You gotta, you gotta slow it down, or else I'm gonna get a headache. <laughs> and so, they decide to start from the very beginning. They're like, well, the universe is a really big place. Yeah, I love that opening line, that's awesome. Because he's like, you know, just a straight-up 50s guy, even though he's uh, Mr. Science or whatever. But uh -huh. you're like, the Earth is not flat, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Fleming is crawling up the rocks, and he's struggling a lot. He's, like, breathing really heavily and going really slow. And Anamala is just, like, crawling circles <laughs> around him. She's just, like, climbing up and down the rocks while he's climbing. And then we get back to the aliens, and apparently he's been climbing those rocks so long that they've had time to finish. <laughs> and Paul tells them that uh, if they had just been honest with them about the atmospherium, he would have just shared it with them from the very beginning. And him saying this is enough for them to move them to tears, which they're confused by because they've never felt human emotions before. <laughs> and Paul tries to tell them that they're crying. And the aliens <laughs> say, oh, crying, we gave that up eons ago. Yeah. Yeah, any, like, human weakness, they always go, we gave that up eons ago. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul is telling them that perhaps the greatest thing that mankind could give them is the, the gift of emotional expression. Even though it's not very manly to express yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly, from out of nowhere, Betty just comes in from the woods and just collapses in front of them. Well, we cut back to Fleming, and finally, after all that climbing, he crawls his way into the cave. But, before we can find out what he's going to do with that, Betty wakes up inside this rocket ship, and he, she recounts what happened to her. He talks about how ugly the mutant was, but how he carried her like a child, and that its eyes were full of understanding. More understanding than she's ever felt from a human being before. <laughs> and Paul is like, well, if I didn't know any better, it almost sounds like you like this thing. And she's like, well, it was really ugly, but he was also really gentle, though. <laughs> and the aliens are like, Huh. We never really looked it in the eyes before. We just kind of keep it as a pet. <laughs> yeah, we just fed it scraps and shit. I don't know. <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention, though, before I forget, when the, the, the camper dude or whatever reaches the skeleton, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, the skeleton wakes up and he's like, who wakes the skeleton? Oh, it's you, the stupid one. <laughs> he's still just beating the dude up left and right, man. That's so good. Yeah, and, and also while uh, Betty is recounting how... How gentle and kind the creature was. Uh, Paul is recounting how sexy all Anamala's <laughs> dancing was. And all he can remember is just her dancing and not much outside of that. Well, for whatever reason, instead of rushing out to find the mutant or the atmospherium or to do anything, they all decide to, to eat and drink out of these weird cups that the aliens have. And they have a bowl full of berries. And Betty says they taste like cranberries, and the aliens are like, Cranberry? We have no word for this on our planet. <laughs> and they say, uh, we do have a, a word for, for eating outside sometimes when it's nice out. We call it kutalala. <laughs> and Betty yeah. says, well, we call it a picnic. <laughs> they're like, oh, we have so much in common between the two of us. Yeah, the lady's even like, I love getting a little tipsy on a glass of wine. And then again, they're like, oh, we gave up getting drunk eons ago. <laughs> <laughs> the aliens say that their their wine is actually made out of cherries because grapes are too sacred on their planet. <laughs> yep. And those also have random names. Same things. No. Same actual fruits. but <laughs> <laughs> The exact same fruit. Just yeah. called something different. <laughs> And the, and the alien husband says that this entire time when we looked at our, your planet, we viewed humans as nothing more than entertaining hairy monkeys. <laughs> but now we realize there's more in common than we thought. And after doing this for God knows how long within the context of the actual film, in, in the actual runtime, it's like 15 or 20 minutes or something, they finally decide that 
Maybe they should go get Paul's detector <laughs> and go find the Emissarium. Why, on our home planet, Marva, we have a custom of actually eating outside if weather is pleasant and acceptable. Why, we have that. We call it a picnic. Picnic. How delightful. We call it Kutilana. <laughs> Kutilana, that's fun to say. Many things on Marva are fun to say, Paul. This space wine is delicious. Heavenly bouquet. Is it like our earth wine made out of grapes, Lattice? Grapes? Oh, surely no, Betty. Uh, grapes on Marva are far too sacred to step on on Marva. We make our wine from cherries, which we call Linbuba. Cherry wine, what a delight. And, and do your people love to get intoxicated as our people love to do? <laughs> no, Betty, we gave up getting drunk eons of your years ago. You know, this talking that we're doing is very helpful in getting to know your people and mine. Why, as we observed you from afar, we thought of you as little more than pleasant, entertaining monkeys, so dirty and foul. You have taught us a lot, Paul and Betty Armstrong. And you, us. But there is one more thing we would be taught now, and that's how to get the atmospherium back so that my planet might benefit and your ship might return you home. You have a device, do you not? A detector of atmospherium. The atmospherium detector, of course. Well, as they're walking through the woods, the husband has the, the transmogrifier in his hand, and he says that he'll use it on the first thing they see in case there's any trouble. Betty tries to, to start a t small talk with the wife. And she says, uh, well, well, who cleans up after the messes? <laughs> and just like everything else, the wife is like, messes? We gave up messes eons ago. There are no messes on Earth. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Apparently trash yeah, doesn't is... exist on Marva. Does <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She doesn't explain how the messes get cleaned no. up or anything. Just <laughs> There's just I, no messes. They just have to one-up, just slightly one-up the humans anytime they complain about something. <laughs> Finally, the skeleton, he's got the power of the atmospherium. The rock's inside of his ribcage, and it's glowing now. And he, he sits up, and in this scene, it's very, very obvious that there's just strings all around the cave, just connected to the skeleton, controlling it. Oh, God. It has to, dude. I mean, that's the best part of those old movies when they were trying to hide it, was discovering the strings. Exactly. And the skeleton the whole time is like, finally, I have the power! Now I can take yeah. over the whole world! Suddenly, though, we go back to our heroes, and the mutant comes out. And they can't use the transponder on it because it's dirty, because it was just <laughs> in the dirt where they left it in the bush. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Paul, he thinks fast, and he tries to intercept it. He just runs straight towards it and tries to football tackle it. But then Betty intervenes, and she's like, No, Paul, you idiot! And then the monster is like, Oh, the pretty lady! And then just runs off. And Betty, she's, she's looking at where it's running off, and she's like, I wonder why that happened. Oh, well. <laughs> and she falls down, falls down next to Paul is like, Paul, Paul, are you okay? <laughs> well, the alien husband, he says he'll go back to the ship to clean the device while Paul and Petty go back to the cabin to recover. Back at the cave, the skeleton's finally walking out. And during this whole <laughs> sequence, we get a, a cutting back and forth between Paul and Betty at the cabin and the skeleton. And Paul and Betty are just like lamenting their time at the cabin and the skeleton is like walking out of the cave and there's like a long montage of it walking where the actors are obviously just like holding it up and like making it bounce oh yeah dude <laughs> and the best part of the whole movie at least when i was watching it with my friends is the skeleton is like climbing down the cliff, <laughs> but they obviously just have it dangling and just like its limbs yeah. are just spread out and the skeleton goes follow me Climb down these rocks like I do. Yeah, but it it shows that scene for like two or three minutes, dude. It's just him kind of scurrying, scurrying, scurrying. <laughs> well, Paul's in the in the cabin, and he's he's done being mopey. He decides to stand up and and go and find out what's what's going on, find the atmospherium, and put an end to all this. And Betty tags along, and <laughs> and Paul's trying to get her to go back. But she's she's putting up a big fuss, and he goes, "Well, I can't stop a woman from tagging." And Betty goes, <laughs> "No one has." Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> At the same time, though, the skeleton crew catches up with the aliens, and they just capture them. They just 
I forget what they do. They like bind them up or something like that. Oh no, they hit, that's right. Uh, they're already at the spaceship, and they, the skeleton uses mind control powers to make them dance. Yep, exactly. The cat and, dance again. Uh huh. And also, inexplicably, the skeleton just has a, a wooden throne that they have him sitting in. Dude, it's awesome. <laughs> Obviously, from a real life perspective, it's because they couldn't just have the skeleton standing, so they just have a chair for him to sit in. I had a Paul quote written down, I don't remember exactly what it is, but he, like, witnesses this, and he's like, I cannot not watch it, my god, yeah. have mercy yeah. on our soul. Yeah. <laughs> I had that written down. Because Betty goes, oh, I can't watch, and Paul goes, I oh, can't right. not watch it. <laughs> my god. It's so good. And the skeleton, he's, he's having a good old time making them dance, but he points towards the alien wife, and he goes, I will make this one my bride. You will be the bride of the skeleton. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and while this is happening, Paul loudly shouts out, he goes, fiend! And then the music just stops. <laughs> <laughs> and they all look over to where they are, and Paul and Betty are just like half-heartedly hiding behind the bush. And the bad guys are like, oh, I wonder what that was. Well, anyway... Yep. And the music goes back, and they're dancing again. And then that Paul says, like, "Yeah, I was gonna say that happens like two or three times, dude." <laughs> yeah, yeah, Paul says something again, and the music just stops again. <laughs> and they look over towards the bush. <laughs> well, Paul and Betty, yeah. After after a few times this happening, they decide to go a little further away from the scene. <laughs> and Paul starts talking out loud, and he stops himself, and he's like, "Are they hearing us? No. Okay, good. <laughs> Keep talking." <laughs> he says to Betty, "Well, I have a plan, but it might be a little dangerous." And Betty says, well, if I wanted a safe life, I wouldn't have married a man who studies rocks. <laughs> and then apparently we, we get back to the, the bad guy crew, and the skeleton is asleep. <laughs> and Fleming is like, I think it's asleep. And Amala says, well, how do you know that? <laughs> and Fleming just says, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Most likely, though. Well, usually he announces when he checks out, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he, he yells at Amala, he says, go prepare the bride. And she says, well, how am I supposed to do that? And he just goes, figure it out. <laughs> well, Paul and Betty, part of their plan, I guess, is they're off trying to find the mutant. And they actually do manage to. And Betty lures it over to the ship with her, her feminine wiles, which basically just means she's putting her leg up on a rock and, like, leaning half-heartedly against a tree. And she she does this several times because the mutant walks at, like two feet per hour yeah. <laughs> it's just like crawling towards her like every it's 10 just... every 10 feet she changes she walks 10 feet changes her pose walks 10 feet changes her pose that's <laughs> <laughs> so good well at the ship animala has prepared the bread but basically all she's done is just make a skull mask it's just yeah. like it's just like a ski mask with like a crude skull just painted over it <laughs> and so the skeleton he's pleased with this anyway and he says that, I will have the husband present the bride to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the alien husband is like, no, no, I won't do it. And the skeleton's like, yes, you will. And so he gets the, the life in his arm. And he's like, I'll do it, but I won't like it. Fucking harsh, man. Goddamn. I'm stealing your wife and you have to watch me do it. Yeah. Behold, the skeletal bride herself. The alien himself will present the bride. <laughs> Such irony. No, you can't make me. I won't present the bride. I won't present the bride. You will and you'll like it. <laughs> I won't like it. I won't like it. Well, after all this happens, though, Betty and Paul, they finally make it there. And they all start fighting with the bad guys. Paul goes up against Fleming, and Betty is up against Animala. And they're just, like, awkwardly, like, hugging each other and, like, rocking <laughs> back and forth. Paul actually manages to knock Fleming over, though. And the skeleton falls off the chair and crawls over towards him. And it starts choking <laughs> him to death. Oh, yeah. And Fleming He's... is like, no! Oh, I hate you! I've always hated you! <laughs> you know how the skeletons say that to him, right? Yeah, they're saying it to each other. Yeah. And, and Fleming is trying to choke the skeleton, and he's like, you're an idiot, you can't <laughs> choke something that doesn't breathe. Yeah. And then, the mutant shows up, and it just, like, bowls onto the scene, and just, like, knocks <laughs> Anna all over, and she's just, like, on the ground, and she's done. 
And then, the skeleton and the mutants start fighting. Oh, the epic climax. And we it's get a close-up shot. It's the best, <laughs> bro. It's the fucking best. <laughs> it's so good. We get a close-up shot of the mutant. Or just the guy in the costume, basically. And he's, like, tangling with the skeleton. Which basically just means he's, like, holding the skeleton up and just, like, <laughs> making its arms wave around. <laughs> yeah. It's just a man in the suit holding that science class thing, walking through the bushes and shit. <laughs> and they keep wrestling with each other until they get to the edge of the cliff. And the skeleton realizes that he's not going to be able to out-wrestle this thing. So he tries to mind-control the mutant, but then Paul is like, Ha, you fool. It's too dumb to be mind-controlled. <laughs> so the mutant throws the skeleton over the cliff, and it shatters onto the, the ground below, which basically just means they just took the skeleton apart and just, like, strewn its bones all over the place. Just as uh, Paul foretold earlier, I mean, he's like, I hope they don't fall off a cliff. No. <laughs> <laughs> The fight was too much for the mutant, though, and it collapses onto the ground and it dies. And Betty walks over to it, and she says, It didn't mean to kill, but it didn't know how not to. <laughs> that was her King Kong speech moment, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the husband, the alien husband, he uses the transponder on Animala, because apparently she was made out of four animals this whole time, and he turns her back into her four animal forms, which we find out was apparently two ferrets, <laughs> a gerbil and a f <laughs> and it's just stock footage of all these different animals and then we get to the final scene of the movie they conclude with the alien husband saying in a very roundabout way that the the understanding that he and paul share over a piece of rock if only the rest of the universe could share that feeling only then will there be peace bye forest animals bye animals you know, a part of me is going to miss Animala. Not the part that's coming home with me, I hope. Sobar, <laughs> <laughs> will you come down with me and remove our meteor from the skeleton? Gladly, Paul. You know, it's funny, but when the kind of understanding that you and I have over a little piece of rock spreads throughout the universe, then, and only then, will there be understanding amongst all peoples, alien and alike, in all kinds of places at the same time. And then with the conclusion of that speech, we get a, a the end with a sudden question mark over it, and it fades to black, and the text scrolls up, and it says, or is it? Isn't it more like a kind of beginning in a way? <laughs> like a new beginning? For everyone? Hmm, I wonder. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get proper credits and the music cues. We get a casting call with all the different actors, and it's clearly like a blooper reel where they just like sprung the camera on them, and they're just like busting out laughing. I like that though, because you could see it was like friends hanging out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's it, the lost skeleton of Cadavra. Hell yeah! Really? <laughs> What'd you think of this movie? I liked it, man. Like we talked pre-show, I ended up having to buy it because it's like impossible to find or whatever, mm -hmm. but. I don't, I'm not really even upset about that at all, because I'll definitely watch this again, especially around, like, Halloween time, when I just want something stupid on TV, you know? Exactly. In a long-running trend of our films, this is a perfect movie to just, like, throw on in the background of a party, especially if people aren't expecting it. Oh, exactly, and especially if, like, somebody were to go sit down in front of the couch and actually pay attention for five minutes, they'd be like, uh -huh. what the fuck is going on, you know, because they just repeat <laughs> the same shit over and over again, and... Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, the skeleton's yeah. hilarious too, man. For sure. If it wasn't for the skeleton being like super funny, it might not have been like the best. But that dude uh -huh. was, yeah, he was key for me, man. He was so good. <laughs> He's just an asshole throughout the yeah. whole movie. Just between uh, him hating uh, what's his name, and then just all of a sudden being like, I sleep now. Oh, shit. Well, <clears throat> let me share a bit of trivia before we give our final rating and yeah. final thoughts on the film. As I said, the budget of this film was about $100,000. Part of uh, the production was they, they had to shoot most of it on mini-DV tape instead of 35mm oh film. <laughs> Which I'm sure helped with just the 1950s-looking quality of it. I think it, it still looks good, regardless. Yeah. 
I had the HD version, so I guess I couldn't really say. But I mean, it, to me, it looked like just as if anyone went outside with their camera today. Yeah, and the the director who made this film, he's made several other films. He's made a a, a pseudo sequel to this film called The Lost Skeleton Returns Again. But reading the IMDb page, it seems like it has nothing to do with this film, even though it shares a lot of the same characters. They just don't mention the movie at all. And also, in a, another running trend for films we review on this wonderful podcast, this movie has a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes. Damn. A, a 45 on Metacritic, but a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. Dude, I think that's a good rating compared to the shit we listened to. Didn't what uh, Ghoulies get like 17% or some crap like that? (laughs) I think we've had movies that were like 1%. (laughs) (laughs) We've definitely had single digit films, that's for sure. So this this movie is like a masterpiece, apparently. Even though those ratings (laughs) kind of rated as being average. Although there's really nothing average about this movie. I did have one Uh, trivia. I don't know if if I'm stealing it from you. But... All right, so like we've mentioned, a lot of the stuff that they use is really cheap looking. Like I said, the paper tube as the rocket or uh, mm-hmm. the caulking gun and stuff. And I looked it up while you were talking, and it is true. It says most of the props uh, were actually purchased on eBay. And <laughs> <laughs> everything else uh, was just crap they had around the house. Exactly like toilet paper rolls and all that stuff. It's awesome. Yeah, the only other pieces of trivia I have are... Uh... There's only really two, I wouldn't say prolific actors in this movie, but two actors that have been in bigger things than this, at least. Uh, The first is Faye Masterson. She played Betty, and she is uh, British, naturally, which uh, I found out that in this guy's other movies, she does play a British character, but she put on like a fake American accent for this one. The biggest role that I found she was in, she had a tiny list on IMDb, but the biggest role was she played a character named Sally in Eyes Wide Shut, the Kubrick film. And she was also in a movie called The Quick and the Dead, which I've heard about, but I've never actually seen. And I don't know which character she plays in that, but definitely two much bigger films than this. And then uh, the only other noteworthy actor was uh, Brian Howe, who played uh, the other scientist man, the bad guy. His IMDb has over 100 credits, and his most prolific role seems to be uh, Sheriff Pickett in Westworld. As I said, he plays the same character in the sequel film, The Lost Skeleton Returns Again, even though he dies in this one. <laughs> but like I said, there's there's no continuity in any of these films. I love when they do that, though. I think we've mentioned oh. that with, uh, what's his name? Um, from from Dust Till Dawn, Treo. Yeah, Danny yeah. Treo just plays the exact same character in every <laughs> movie. Keeps, well, not even that, but he just keeps coming back in those movies specifically, even mm-hmm. though he dies he, every time. He dies in every single movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Billy, now that we've gone through this, how many skeletons climbing cliffs would you give out of five? <laughs> Follow me down this cliff. I'd give this shit five out of five, dude. Like I said already, I would totally... I own the fucking thing now, so... Uh-huh. And I'm not even upset about it, so uh, I'll definitely throw it on again anytime, really, but Halloween especially, just to have some bullshit in the background. It's good. I liked it a lot, man. At first, I was a little like, oh, crap, why did he choose this movie for, like, our year anniversary or whatever? Uh-huh. But uh, it makes sense, dude, because Kung Pao is also just kind of like a shitty, like, <laughs> B fake kung fu movie, you know? So it's, it's pretty much exactly like parallel to that. Well, if you don't have any more thoughts, I want to leave our listeners with this. If our podcast tells you anything, and if this movie tells you anything, is doesn't matter if you're not a millionaire. doesn't matter if you have no talent. It doesn't matter if you think your idea is the dumbest idea on the planet. Go out and make stuff. Make your own movie. Just go and do it. And maybe a couple of dicks will talk about it on their podcast. (laughs) Damn right. I want to wish everyone a good night, and thank you for listening. Commando Kyle will see the light of day, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so.
Dinner was delicious, honey. Keep cooking like that and I won't even be able to move, let alone do science. <laughs> That'd suit me fine, Mr. Meteor. Ouch, that hurt. Tomorrow, let's say you and I go searching for our rocky, glowing, radioactive friend from space together. Paul Armstrong, I do believe there's hope for you yet. Shake on it? Why shake when we can touch other things? Like lips?